is Pull Yourself Together with E. Shaver Booksellers. Hello, I'm Jessica, a lifelong lover of books, wide-ranging reader, fan of obscure British literature, all things Douglas Adams, long sentences, music biographies, the Oxford comma, always up for travel, except during COVID, and of course, Jane Austen. And I'm Melissa, an eclectic bibliophile and all-around nerd who also loves Jane Austen, comics, and cooking. Together, we run an independent bookstore in Savannah, Georgia. Each episode, we discuss the books we've been reading and recommend. Well, hi. Hey, how is everybody? Um, we, we are well aware that it's been a minute. <laughs> Since our last podcast. Um We've had a busy summer, busier than we thought it would be. Um, Melissa and I have gone to market, which we've never done before in Atlanta. So that was an adventure where we found lots of really cool um, paper and stationery office card Mm -hmm. things. Yes. So we have a lot of cool new stuff in the shop and on the way to the shop. So that's been exciting. And I mean, honestly... Like every other business this summer, we are way busier than we thought we were going to be and also a little short-staffed, and Mm -hmm. we're just rolling with it. (laughs) We're just working through it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think realistically, we had talked about this, we might try to do these every three weeks to just give ourselves a minute to digest the books we are reading and not feel quite so pushed to read a hundred things at once. Yeah. And also, I mean, to be able to do this on a, um, reliable timeframe. I know this is something we keep saying we're going to do (laughs) and we keep falling short of that, but believe me, we are trying. And, and I think we'll get there eventually. We'll settle into a nice rhythm someday. Yeah. Some other things just need to settle down too. (laughs) I don't think that's the way the world is going to work right now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, additional personal stresses that we've brought on ourselves, like kitchen renovations and fostering a puppy yes, (laughs) and all the things. Just life, (laughs) the universe and everything. Yeah. Um, But it's been a very active summer this summer. Unfortunately, it's uh, been an active summer for the Delta variant of COVID as well. So we are back to wearing masks in the store and... um, just waiting to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Um, but because a lot of things um, in the publishing world got pushed back from last year, um, there are a lot of good books coming mm-hmm. out. There are a lot of good books coming out in the fall. Um, it's it's a big time for publishing right now. There's, there's a lot of stuff in the pipe, uh, so a lot yes. of books to look forward to. And it's very exciting, although ominously our our reps keep telling us that if we want it we need to order a lot of them because printing is going to be a problem for quite a while yeah so basically um for the holiday season just a heads up to people who listen to this um kind of like last year shop earlier than you think you should um and if there's something you know you want put in a pre-order for it because quantities will be limited and it's it's kind of a supply chain issue yeah it's it's not it's not um us not ordering things it's just we're limited in what we can order um (laughs) things are slower than they have been so just bear in mind yes on that happy note let's talk about some books we have read yes um well i'll jump in if that's cool yeah go for it um so (laughs) Um, for science fiction and fantasy book club, um, 
my my husband has been joining us for the book club discussions and has been um, asking when he gets input into picking the book. So we mm-hmm. we decided that we would we would trade off, and so he gets to pick one sci-fi, one fantasy, and then it's my pick for sci-fi and fantasy. And so for the fantasy pick that I did most recently, um, I <laughs> finally. Finally mm-hmm. got around to reading a book that I literally had had on my shelf since 2014. I know because the receipt was inside of it. <laughs> um, it's The Golem and the Genie by Helene Wecker. And I will say it did work out really well for me because the second book in mm-hmm. in this... I'm not sure if it's going to be a series or if there will just be the two books, but the second book came out not that long ago. Mm -hmm. So I had instant gratification, unlike all the other people who read this book and had to wait seven years. So it was good timing. Yeah, sometimes things work out. It was meant to be. Um, So The Golem and the Genie is historical fiction with a Mm -hmm. bit of a fantastical element to it. Um, It takes place at the end of the 19th century, um... And you start out in this small Polish town where this man who just is a little bit strange and never Mm -hmm. has had much luck with ladies in his small town goes to this old, like, Kabbalah master in town. um, Jewish mystic. Yeah. Well, and it's specifically Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so asks him to create a golem for him. And a golem is a creature that's made out of clay that is humanoid, um, that is bound to a master and will basically, it is basically... Um, charged with protecting their master Mm -hmm. and sort of doing what their master says. Um, So a very subservient creature. Um, But he would like his golem to be a wife for him because he has not had that in his life. And so um, he has this golem created and he takes her in a um, crate on a ship Mm-hmm. where he's immigrating to New York City. And the year is? Um, it's the late 1800s. Okay. Um, and so he um, becomes very, very ill on this journey, and he had been told not to wake her up until he got to New York because it, being on the ship and being contained would be very um, jarring for for the golem. But he decides because he's not feeling well and he's having a rough time with mm-hmm. the voyage that he's going to go ahead and just wake her up. So he does that, and he dies from appendicitis. Like his appendix bursts that mm-hmm. same night, and he dies on the ship. And because the golem doesn't have a master anymore, mm-hmm. she then starts to hear everybody's wants and desires. So she's not only bound to one person, she just has this constant cacophony of people's inner thoughts and what they want in her mm-hmm. head, and it is very overwhelming for her. Um, so they dock. She kind of sneaks past immigration, mm-hmm. and she is taken in by this really kind rabbi who recognizes what she is Mm -hmm. and um he sets her up with a job in a bakery and Mm -hmm. so she's living her life as a a baker in this bakery and she's very hard working and you know she's great at her job 
also at the same time Mm -hmm. in um, another kind of little borough of New York, there is a um, tinsmith or tin worker who somebody has brought in this um, flask that's been in their family for years Mm -hmm. and they want him to like clean it up. And so he's messing with it. And when he does that, he frees a genie who has been trapped in this flask for about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And um, the genie has a iron cuff on his wrist, is not able to do like the magic that genies are able to do. He's been bound into this flask and he has kind of no memory of how that happened. Mm -hmm. So he then becomes a apprentice in this metal shop for this tinsmith who, who's, who's freed him. And he starts being called Ahmad because he Mm -hmm. doesn't have a name. And so he has to live in society. And so eventually Chava, who is the Gollum and Ahmed Mm -hmm. meet and they strike up a relationship based on the fact that they're both kind of other and they, they can recognize that each one is, is a mystical being. Mm -hmm. Um, and it goes from there. Um, and so the second book that's come out is The Hidden Palace, and mm-hmm. it continues the story. And it kind of looks at some of the issues that I thought of while I was reading it, which is, you know, these two mystical beings being in society who are not aging. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually that's going to start to be noticeable. Yeah. And how how it is that they can live a life... Um, amongst humans Mm -hmm. and um if you're a fan of something like the night circus and that Mm -hmm. sort of really beautiful descriptive writing that just kind of pulls you in um you will you will be a fan of these Mm -hmm. these books um they they're i just i thought the way she described things was lovely i thought the characters were enchanting um there's a great cast of secondary characters it's Mm -hmm. a very full book and and some of the secondary characters that you think are just kind of you know throwaway characters end up being very important and in ways Mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect um so yeah very good highly recommend golem and the genie and the hidden palace by helene wecker yes it sounds wonderful um Eventually, I'm sure I'll get to it. But <laughs> you know, it, sometimes it takes seven so, years. Sometimes <laughs> it does. Um, so I'm going to talk about something completely different that our rep, Jess, uh, that we love at Penguin Random House recommended. And Melissa and I were both like, hmm, maybe <laughs> not. Um, it's got a kind of disturbing cover, and the title is Night Bitch. It's by Rachel Yoder. It's a debut novel. Um, and... Jess had recommended it as one of her favorites. And normally I love her favorites, but I was very resistant to this one. And I ended up listening to it on Libro FM, and I absolutely loved this book. It is a very different kind of book. Um, It is for fans of um, the yellow wallpaper or women who run with wolves or um, Otasha Moss... (laughs) Um, Kafka. I mean, it's kind of out there and it is, it is very dark. It is the story of, um, a young mother, well, a a youngish mother who had a, a flourishing career in the art world. Um, and she had her dream job 
She has two master's degrees and graduated from a very prestigious college undergrad and is living in a small town in the Midwest that's a university town. And um, then she and her husband, who's an engineer, um, decide to have a baby. And she has the baby, and ultimately she ends up staying at home with the child. And her husband travels a lot for his work, and so... um, the book starts out, he's been gone for 24 weeks in a row, and um, they're only 26 weeks into the year. So she is just very much alone with this child. How old is the child at this The point? child is a toddler at this point, just starting to talk and walk around. Um, so um, mobile enough to be yeah. constantly frustrated. Yes, that is it. And the toddler is sleeping in their bed and her bed every single night, not napping well. I mean, just all of the frustrations of this period of motherhood. Um, She also, because she worked, doesn't really want to hang out with the other mommies that are always around to have their children, like, perfectly dressed, to they go to this little library group. um, And she sees them, but she's very resistant to being friends with them because she just kind of looks at them as you know, not interesting. She tries to connect with her friends who work still and have children in the summer, but that also isn't working for her because um, they just kind of leave her out of the conversation and make her feel stupid for staying at home. And so she's just in this this real funk. Um, and she <laughs> notices that she's growing hair, like thick patches of hair on the nape of her neck, and that her teeth look sharper. And so she tells her husband that she's turning it, she thinks she's turning into a dog. And he's like, yeah, okay, honey, sure you are. You look just the same to me. So you never really know for sure in this book whether she is actually turning into a dog because it seems like she is. And he just doesn't see her because he's not paying any attention. Yes, and so... If you're in the throes of early motherhood um, and you're at home a lot, uh, this may not be the book for you to read right now. Um, <laughs> there, there is um, a lot of dark violence in it, um, which is not gratuitous. It's important to the story, but it is deeply disturbing. The imagery is... Um, her writing is beautiful and evocative, and so she really... You can picture it, and it's not, it's not pretty. <laughs> There's an incident with the cat that it took me two days to pick up the book again because I found it so disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she she's going to the library and she finds this book in the library called A Field Guide to Magical Woman, a mythical ethnography. Mm-hmm. And then she meets this group of mommies in the library um, who she kind of thinks they may be more than they are. And she starts a friendship with them. They're all into selling these herbs, which is kind of a pyramid scheme. And <laughs> but they they are all also, she realizes, women who worked and who are just have this leisure time that's not really leisure, that they don't know how to fill their days and take care of their children. And so I it having had three children at home all at once and spending time like this, I completely appreciated this book. You, I'm just going to reiterate a little warning that you you definitely have to have a dark turn of mind <laughs> to enjoy this book. And um, you have to like, uh, 
sort of the art world and magical realism. But the writing is beautiful. It doesn't read like a debut novel. Um, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who just wants something that's a little out there and different. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the comparisons um, that I saw for it was My Sister the Serial Killer, yep. um, which was a completely out there sort of book, but still something that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and mm -hmm. this one this one comes about with um, sort of a, a empowerment, female empowerment and self-realization. Um, and it, uh, without giving away too much, um, through this journey that she's on, she really kind of finds that um, just by getting herself back into the world and actually voicing her I, her needs and ideas not in a in a passive aggressive sort of mommy-esque way that women are taught to do mm -hmm. but in a much more stark realistic and brutal way um, she regains herself and and her life and and her marriage which was definitely not going well when you meet her in the book mm -hmm. so um, it's definitely a feminist manifesto about, what women go through with other women and with their husbands and motherhood. Okay. So that is Night Bitch. All right. <laughs> By Rachel Yoder. All right. Um, again, something completely different. <laughs> um, so I um, started reading the new book uh, that's coming out by Colson Whitehead. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Harlem Shuffle. And it is expected on September 14th. Um, you can pre-order it now if you yes. are, are interested. Um, so in keeping with how Colson Whitehead operates, all of his books are totally different, totally different from each other. Completely and, different. And this is completely different from the other books that I've read by Colson Whitehead. Um, this is kind of a heist capery novel set in Harlem mm -hmm. um, at the end of the 50s, going through the 60s. Um, it also is a family drama set against the heist story. Um, I'm not going to give a lot of it away because, because it is a heist story. There are, there are, you mm -hmm. know, there are things. Um, but it, the main character in it is a man named Ray Carney. And Ray is a black man who owns a um, furniture shop. Um, and the way he ended up having the money to buy this furniture store is mm -hmm. interesting and kind of a little twisty. Um, but he um, sells mostly new furniture. He also mm -hmm. does some secondhand furniture from like estate sales and things. But um, he also has a little bit of a side hustle um, where a cousin of his will bring him some some things that are possibly um, have not been obtained on the up and up and um, stolen. Yes, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, if you want to call it that, appropriated. Um, he does not ask where they come from. They're transitory. They're transitory. Yes, he does not ask where these things come from. He just sells them and passes, you know, the money on with a slight. Um, commission taken mm -hmm. for himself. Um, so he does have a, a background in doing that. Um, so his cousin, Freddie, gets him involved as the fence 
in a heist that they're pulling. Um, so there is a hotel in Harlem that um, caters to kind of the more rich and famous black entertainers um, mm-hmm. and just people who um, who have a lot more money than the rest of the neighborhood does. Um, and so they decide to basically rob the safe deposit box boxes that the hotel has for people mm-hmm. to keep their valuables in. Um, and so they, they pull off this job. Um, one of the crew members ends up dead. One of the crew members is missing and they don't really know where all the things that have been stolen have gone to. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying to figure that out while also trying to stay below the radar so people don't know that they were involved with this because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who um, whose stuff has gone missing who are not pleased about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, Ray also has um, a wife and a baby and his wife is pregnant again um, and her pregnancy is kind of... Um, been difficult mm-hmm. um and so she uh she's she's not having an easy go of it she's supposed to be on bed rest and um she also is very light-skinned ray is very dark-skinned mm-hmm. their first child is very dark-skinned and this is a point of contention for um his in-laws mm-hmm. um so um so there's the family aspect of trying to get along with his in-laws who have always been more intellectual, been more mm-hmm. striving, um, just not the same sort of people that Ray's family is. Okay. So it's, it's really good. Um, Colson Whitehead is an excellent writer. Um, he, yes. he really pulls you into the story. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for something so kind of, uh, would we say James McBride almost Yeah, I would say, like, if James McBride and Ocean's Eleven had kind of a weird baby. Okay, <laughs> that, that hung out in Harlem. That this hung would out be in have a, Harlem in the 60s. That... Maybe throw a little James Baldwin in there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Very that's good. Harlem Shuffle. and that's It's coming out in September. Yeah, September 14th. So many interesting books this fall. Mm-hmm. By by big authors, like a lot yeah. of big people have new books coming out. They so. do. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Savannah Book Festival, it's been so much fun to look at everyone and... and have the dream list of who... Yeah, we have sort of our <laughs> fantasy football list of who we'd really <laughs> like to come. I, we don't know if that'll happen, but it's fun to dream. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to talk about something completely different. I know Melissa and I have talked about how we like to read cookbooks, <laughs> um, which is a fun pastime yeah. of mine and makes me end up with way too many cookbooks at my house. But I also enjoy reading design books. Um And I always have. Um, Sometimes I just want to flip through and look at the pictures of all these beautiful rooms. And sometimes um, they're fun to actually read because there's usually a lot about the designer. It's like a many, extremely condensed memoir (laughs) of sort of their history. Um, And so this is a designer I didn't know much about. His name is Brian Paquette. I'm going to go with. Um, seems right. <laughs> yeah, and he um, 
He's in Seattle, um, but he grew up in Rhode Island. Um, he's adopted. His two parents were in the medical field and hoped that he would go that way. And he um, said he was pretty much born with a paintbrush in his hand. So he has a degree in fine arts and is a painter. And But, you know, when he got out of college, quickly realized that it's he, hard to make a living being a painter. painter. And he was also working with large-scale installations and mm -hmm. projects. And so he started getting jobs in furniture shops and fabric um, and furniture design and kind of worked his way up. And then mm -hmm. so he had ended up moving out to Portland with a friend of his just to paint. He had some money in savings so he could kind of do this for a minute. Um, his parents were not super delighted about this <laughs> according to the book and um and so then he ended up getting a job again in furniture in Seattle and he moved up to Seattle with no friends no money and just lucked out into a place to live and um was really enjoying his job started working with clients and then had this one family who asked him to design you know to decorate their house um, which turned into a year-long project and he went from there. And I just like his designs because he um, tries to bring in the family's memories, likes, and it's all about comfort and livability, um, function always first. And So then, he's not one of those designers that like brings in a bunch of random crap to stage. And like when somebody asks you what this random knickknack is, mm -hmm. it is nothing that mm -hmm. has anything to do with you. <laughs> no, he really likes to take a client's memories and try to work those in so mm -hmm. that when you walk into each room, there's something that's familiar that says who you are and speaks to your life's experience. And, and there's a great little passage in the book um, where he says, I recall my mother telling me her favorite smell is the scent of burning leaves. As a child, she would ask my grandmother to circle the neighborhood where people were burning leaves in the fall. My mother would ride with her head out the car window, perfectly <laughs> engulfed with, in the, with this scent, and just, um, and just that made her happy. Um, so, And then he talks about um, there is a shade of blue that I refer to as 10,000 leagues under the sea blue. It reminds me of seeing the plain air painters on the beach when I was young. It reminds me of the velvet drapes in my grade school auditorium before a recital. It reminds me of floating in the sea as a little kid. Mm -hmm. So memory is really important to him. And he talks about the continuity of um, moving from room to room within a house, which is nice because I tend to decorate one room, decorate another room, and not think about the flow. Or I did at one point in my life and then... I realized that my house looked like a box of crayons and was really disjointed. <laughs> so, um, so I've gotten much more into flow in space. And then he also talks about the hidden secret of scent in a house. Mm -hmm. it, it's very important to who you are, and people forget, you know, kind of that there's it, that it's a whole underlying process. But um, yeah, the homes look incredibly livable, and like books are used in a thoughtful way. And he talks about how using the clients, things that they have that evoke memories for them, bring a richness and a depth to a space that if it's just all barren and sterile, you don't have. Mm -hmm. So I think he really gets to know his clients. And then also what I like is the interiors are doable. I mean, they're doable on one level for his very wealthy clients, but they're also doable on another level. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of 
simple changes that you can make in furniture that is adjacent price-wise to this or or affordable that if there's something if that you as you're looking in this book mm -hmm. and you're like oh I love this room you could recreate something you could like recreate that in your something home. like it in your home without a bazillion dollars right um, which I really appreciate and I, I just love that like the first family that he worked for had three children dogs that he um, he manages to make spaces that look very clean soothing and comfortable but are completely livable mm-hmm um, and they do have knickknacks and other things in them, but they're, they're all things, you know, that, that the people have collected themselves over the years for the most part. So anyway, I just think it was a, it's a fun book that I've spent a couple of rainy afternoons perusing and I just wanted to tell everybody about it. Um, it's called At Home, Evocative and Art Forward Interiors by Brian Paquette. Very nice. Yes. Um, okay, so the next book um, that I want to talk about is one, the one that I'm currently reading. And this is another Jess of Penguin mm -hmm. Random House uh, favorite that I, she recommended. She knows us too yeah, well. she, yeah, she gets us. Um, so this is one that she recommended to both Jessica and myself. Um, and it just came out last week. It's called Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. And, and I'm going to be reading it next. Yes. Um, has a fabulous cover if, um, if you look it up. Um, so... It is um, kind of, I would, I would say it's almost modern day sort of Bridget Jones because I think mm -hmm. Bridget Jones is a little dated at this point. And it's a good snapshot of the time that that book was written. But I think that this is sort of kind of the updated version of that. So you've got the main character, Nina. Nina is a food writer um, mm -hmm. and she lives in London. She has written a very, very successful, like her first book was kind of memoir slash cookbook. Mm -hmm. um, and that did very well. And so she's in the process of writing her second book, which is strictly a cookbook. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a cookbook for like people who have really tiny kitchens. So like the, not... A Not, tiny kitchen cookbook. Yeah, it, it's basically called The Tiny Kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, so I like it. Yeah, and so she has just bought a flat and has mm -hmm. her first actual home that's all hers. It's um, the second floor in a home that's been divided into mm -hmm. flats. So she has a woman that lives above her, and then she has... There was a man and a woman living in the flat below her, and now it's just this mm -hmm. man who lives on a completely different schedule from her, so she doesn't really ever see him. Mm -hmm. And then she begins to see him, and they have a very, very um, uncomfortable ongoing feud. Like, <laughs> they do not get along, and it, it, it stressed me out because I was mm -hmm. like, ah. <laughs> Um, but she's single and she's mm -hmm. 32 and she's decided now that she's got her own home, her career's kind of going in the right direction that she is going to look for a relationship. Mm -hmm. And the way she chooses to do this is through dating apps. Um, and I gotta say, I'm so glad that this doesn't, didn't exist when I oh my was gosh. dating. I can't even... It, it, Tell you how thankful I am that there was nothing like this yeah. when I was dating. Yeah. Um, so she goes on this um, dating app and she makes a connection with this man, Max. Mm -hmm. 
they meet. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Melissa has a dog named Max, and now that's all I'm going to picture in my head. Well, I mean, you know, you could do worse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she make she starts dating this guy Max that she meets on this dating app, and everything's going very well. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a group of friends um, who are all. She has one who's very very single, like she is, and is also kind of dating on dating apps. So she's got that one aspect mm-hmm. where she can kind of relate with this person on that level. She's got her best friend from childhood who is married and is getting ready to have their second mm-hmm. baby and is kind of in that gross, like, I'm married and have children and you're single and you couldn't possibly understand the life that <laughs> I live, um, sort of condescension mm-hmm. that sometimes comes with with that. Yeah. Um, not always. Not always, but but very yes. much in this case. Um, she has her ex-boyfriend, Joe, who they were together for a really long time. They split up and have remained really, really good friends. And he's now dating this new woman, has gotten engaged to her. She is actually going to be an usher in mm-hmm. her ex's wedding. And Why? Why? Because they've remained incredibly close friends. Okay. And and again, I don't understand that situation because, you know, it, yeah. it seems like it's that would be difficult. It's always fraught with some kind of something. Yes, but. exactly. So dating Max is going really, really well. They start getting closer and closer. Um, one night they're out. He tells her that he loves her. She says it back. And then he stops communicating with her. He ghosts her. And mm-hmm. with no explanation. Oh, yep. Yeah. It and, happens. And so that I've, I've just gotten a little bit past that point where he has just broken off all contact. Well, we probably don't need to know anymore no, because it'll no, give it up. But, no, um, but, yes. Um, but yes. So that's, that's where we are. Oh, and mm-hmm. I forgot to mention her. Um, she has kind of a weird relationship with her mother. Um, her mother is a lot younger than her father is. Her mm-hmm. father is starting to have dementia. Um, and so he is really, really, he, he's just going steadily downhill. Um, and her, she and her mother have very different ways of dealing with her dad's progressing illness. Um, she feels like her mom isn't taking it seriously and that mm-hmm. her mom is just... Like, he, he goes missing one day. Like, he mm-hmm. walks out of the house and is missing for hours. And she finally figures out where he is and goes and gets mm-hmm. him. But she blames her mother for, in saying that she's not taking care of him in the way that she should be. But her mother is also dealing with this day in and day out, mm-hmm. all day. Um, so so there's, there's tension there. And um, I think the way she writes about the father's illness is very, um, she does a good job with it. She, she, I think she paints an accurate picture of it. And I think she paints an accurate picture of the stressfulness of that situation between her Mm -hmm. mother and herself and just, yeah, you know, looking at both sides of it. Yeah. Yes. That, (laughs) sorry, that reminds me of something I was thinking of last night. Um, when I was, very little because I really don't have a, a formed memory of this. My parents used to like to tell this story about how I rode my tricycle from where we lived to 
the club that was on the beach, Mm -hmm. which was a mile away from our house. And um, they didn't realize I was gone, which I'm thinking (laughs) it takes quite a while for, I think I must have been like three or four at the time, for a child to ride a tricycle a mile Right. And if you don't have a really clear memory of this, like you, yeah, yeah, you were pretty young. I was pretty young. And then the club called them, the receptionist, and said, We've got Jessica here. She rode her tricycle down. You need to come get her. And I was like, What? They thought this was funny. But literally, I rode through, like on the golf course path where there were alligators, right. big lagoons of water, <laughs> people playing golf. And Nobody thought, A, that this was unusual, and to say, hey, what is that little kid doing What's on their tricycle? What's that random kid riding their tricycle through the golf course for? for? <laughs> and B, I must have been gone for hours. Yeah. And they didn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that's 1960s parenting at its best right there. <laughs> yeah, that's a, mm-hmm. it's pretty much the epitome. <laughs> yeah, and again, they thought it was a hilarious story. Right. And I don't know why last night I was thinking back on it. I'm like, well, that was just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. Anyway. Sort of, sort of the same thing, yeah. but with an older, older man. <laughs> yes. Sort of the same thing, but with an older man. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyhow, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So that's Ghost by Dolly Alderton. Um, like I said, it came out last week. So mm-hmm. it, is, it is out there in the world for people to snatch <laughs> up. Um, well, now I think... Um, on, on that note, we should talk about Jane Eyre. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we just finished reading Jane Eyre for our Tequila Mockingbird book group, Mm -hmm. um, where we read primarily classics, I would say. Yeah. And And some, some kind of more contemporary classics mm -hmm. as well, but. So recently we've had a run, we read Jane Eyre, Cider House Rules, and, um, Madame Bovary. Madame Bovary. Which we talked about Madame Bovary on here. Um, um, but one of the women at our book groups asked the question of, well, are these connected? And initially we were like, no, but actually the three books are connected in a way because they all talk about the oppression of women. Yeah, and, and that was not intentional. That's just kind of the way it ended up. Mm-hmm. And actually Insider House Rules they read Jane Eyre out loud. Um, So it was kind of an interesting transition to go into Jane Eyre having read Cider House Rules where they talked a lot about Jane Eyre. Right. Um, But Jane Eyre, I had not read since I was in college. So I had read Jane Eyre once in high school. I read it again in college. And then this is my third time reading it. I, let's see, I... Did not read it in high school. We read, of the Brontes, we read... Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. We didn't read Jane Eyre, um, but I did read it when I, I think I did read it in my twenties, and I think I have read it one other time mm-hmm. since then, and then this time. So I think this was my third time reading it as well. Um, but I have to say, of of my times reading it, this time I enjoyed it much more than I have in the past. And really, you know, I would always be on Team Austin if it was Team Austin and Team Bronte. But I saw a lot more in this book, especially in her character development. Um, Just the sketches she took of people um, that Jane encounters, the different characters um, that I really appreciated. I mean, she was a really good... um, I want... Parody's not the right word, but she was a really good um, 
telling amusing and biting um, stories about the people within Jane's acquaintances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed it this time, much more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought we had a good discussion for the most part about it um, when we talked about it at book group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had always not had as much sympathy for Jane and her what were seemingly bad life choices in my, you know, like why, why would she choose uh, Mr. Rochester? But, but in rereading it, you can see the motivation mm-hmm. for why she chose and, and just how that situation with her as the governess, um, how that was the only place that she had ever had that she could comfortably call home where she wasn't completely alone, Mm -hmm. wasn't completely ostracized. Wasn't being taken advantage of. Yeah. Um, Really, I was, I was very impressed also by the, um, the ability of, of Bronte to paint a very good psychological picture of Jane Mm -hmm. and the situation she was in. And I mean, we have names for it now, but at the time when, Um, she was writing this book, there wouldn't have been um, sort of that codependent way of looking at, you know, the world. And she she just, the way she talks about Jane saying, um, this was the first time I'd ever been happy about going home. Mm -hmm. He spoke to me as if I was of real value to him. You know, even though looking at it from the outside, we see that it's not a perfect relationship. No. Through Jane's eyes, well, it's the best it's ever been for her. It, it's true. And, you know, she's an orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, she had an uncle who cared for her until he passed away. And then his wife was horrible to her. Um, so I feel like one one doesn't like to throw the daddy issues. Mm-hmm. But I feel very much that that was a a father figure as well as... The romantic attachment, and I think the romantic yeah. attachment came because he was he was someone who would take care of her. So, yeah, so she thought, and um, in the end, I think she realizes that that it's wonderful to be taken care of, but it's also wonderful to be able to take care of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's good to have balance balance and to have your own resources mm-hmm. to not be beholden to someone else right and so it's it is a coming of age story <laughs> um and but really in in a, a a very wonderful way um we had a lot of discussion about how mr rochester kind of had to be maimed and lowered um so that Jane could be with him. And I, I, it was interesting because we have some teachers who teach this in their classroom, high school teachers in our group, and they were talking about how he had to be brought down um, to be with Jane. But I always looked at it as Jane's character was so elevated because she was able to forgive um, her aunt for all of her, the terrible things she did to her. She was able to get something out of all her experiences um, I feel like he he had to be, um, not that he was lowered because Jane was low, but he had to have some kind of um, 
absolution absolution for all the things that he had done to bring him up to the level of Jane Eyre. Well, and we also had a lot of discussion, too, about Mr. Rochester and Mr. Rochester's life choices. And, you know, yeah, was it good that he was keeping his wife in the attic? No. No, it wasn't. But, but of the options that he had available to him at the time, yes. um, he did the thing that was actually the most caring and the most sympathetic for his wife who was mentally ill. Um, to, to have put her in an institution at that time would have been incredibly cruel. Yeah, and she was kept in his house being cared for by someone who treated her well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, ultimately... Should we have attempted to marry someone while still married to no. her? No. Probably not. That no. was probably the one place where we're like, um, there's not really an excuse for that. No. <laughs> and um, and I think, you know, part of the attraction of Jane was that she had no family and no relatives that were going to call him out on it mm-hmm. should this become known. And I feel like in his mind he thought... Well, there, you know, there really wasn't an option to divorce at that point. Well, th- well, Tim and I were talking. We were talking about this yesterday, mm-hmm. actually, like because he watched the movie with mm-hmm. me after um, I finished reading the book. But it was like, did the option exist for him to divorce her, but still care for her? Would that have been something that could? Would that have been an option? Uh, maybe. I mean, there is. Um, there was divorce always, mm-hmm. it, um, and people did divorce their wives or husbands for being mentally ill. Yeah, but see, see, but, I feel like in that situation, if he had again, as I think in most pieces of literature mm-hmm. or movies or television shows, if they just had a conversation about it, yeah. <laughs> like if he had said, "Hey, here's the here's thing. the thing, <laughs> I would like to marry you." But here's what I've got going on. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out a way that we all win here. Well, <laughs> it wouldn't be the same book. If no, that, it but, wouldn't be the same book. Well, but, but yeah, and you when know what Bronte I mean. was writing mm-hmm. it, this seemed like the the idea that he would tell anyone that he had this wife in the first place mm-hmm. would ostracize him from society. And then the double stigma of having the mad wife and then divorcing the mad wife. Um, I kind of feel like they they live sort of removed anyway, that I feel like there was a way that that could have been arranged, that everyone would have been mm-hmm. happy and probably, but yeah. it, it still wouldn't have been as entertaining. No, it novel. wouldn't have been the it wouldn't have well, been Jane it Eyre. wouldn't have set <laughs> up the stark contrast that you have to have to make it the dramatic. Well, tale and, that and, it is. and you wouldn't have Jane kind of coming into her mm-hmm. own, like, and, and that journey that she had to yes. go on. Yeah, I understand that there are all, all, all the, the reasons all the why other it didn't things <laughs> why that didn't happen. But at the same time, it's just like, have you just sat down and been like, here's the thing. <laughs> well, I mean, wouldn't a lot of the world be better if that yeah, was the way? That's what I'm saying. Yes. Like, every time I watch a TV show, I'm like, if you had just talked about that, like, it was a simple two second conversation that would have cleared. All of that. <laughs> right. But that's not the way the world yeah. works. Mm-hmm. Well, then we can move on to the 
the other book that we read for Tequila Mockingbird. So Cider House Rules. Cider House Rules. Um, by John uh, Irving. Yes. Um, again, this was one that I think it was when I was in, I was a freshman in college. Someone recommended A Prayer for Owen Meany to mm-hmm. me by John Irving. And I read that and fell in love with John Irving's writing and then went and read everything he See, had written. You See, were, you were lucky because I started reading him in high school and it wasn't all out yet. Yeah. So I had to wait for new books. But I, um, I, uh, Garp, of course. Yeah, The, the World According to Garp. Garp. Yeah. The movie came out when I was in high school. And had Robin Williams. Yes. Yeah. And so... Um, then I started reading John Irving, and um, A Prayer for Owen Meany didn't come out until I was, gosh, I guess I was maybe a freshman in college at that point. Yeah, I, um, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I know when I read it, it mm-hmm. had been out for a while, and so... Maybe it was sometime in high school, and then um, The Cider House Rules I read in high school, and then again, and then the one I'm blanking on... Um, Hotel New Hampshire? Yes, Hotel New Hampshire, which yeah. was one of my all-time favorites, although it's a deeply weird book, as are uh, all, most of I his. think all of his books a have... A Widow the, for One Year. I love yeah, that book. so good. I know. <laughs> I Yeah. So I, all of his books have an element of the mm-hmm. deeply weird about them, but I feel like also all of his books have a very feminist bent to them, they which do. is kind of unusual given the man who's writing them. I, I mean, like, he just... And and some of the other stuff that's in his books are it's they're such a conundrum, but I always very much enjoy them. Yes, and there's always sort of that one poignant, like in um, Hotel New Hampshire, the dog Sorrow mm-hmm. that they had um, stopped, and mm-hmm. then they had Sorrow floats. That was one of my favorite sort of images. Well, and there's always this element of the grotesque mm-hmm. to all of his books. Yes, absolutely. I, so it's there's like the poignancy, the feminist. And then the grotesque. something really <laughs> grotesque, like let's say the donkey situation in Cider House Rules. Yeah. Um, or pony. I think it was a pony. Pony. A small equine being. Yes. Um, and we're going to leave it at that for, yeah. for not to ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it yet. It's true. You have to wait for that part. Um, so if you're not familiar with the Cider House Rules, mm-hmm. um, it is the story of... Um, Dr. Larch, mm-hmm. who is, um, he's the doctor at a orphanage in Maine. Right. Well, it starts out with his, his medical training. Yes. And, and his formative years. Um, but ultimately he ends he up, ends up as the doctor at this orphanage. And so he delivers pregnant mothers who are giving their children up for adoption, mm-hmm. and then the children stay at this orphanage. He also, on the down low, performs abortions um, for mothers who do not want to keep their children and do not mm-hmm. want to go through with their pregnancy. Um, and he's come to this decision through his life his, experience. His life experience. Um, and he does this even though abortions are illegal, mm-hmm. but he believes that... And while he doesn't necessarily believe in them from an ethical standpoint... He believes... Or a moral standpoint, point. I guess, but he believes that it's not his decision to make. It's not his decision, and it shouldn't be a death sentence. Yes. Um, or... Because or infertility he, always. Yeah, because for women. he's seen what happens when an abortion is not 
available to someone in a safe way. Yes. And so he um, really takes that to heart because he has such a vivid and horrible experience um, seeing what what's happened to women mm-hmm. um, with botched um, abortions. And so... So, so there's an yeah. orphan um, named Homer. Yes. And Homer is the orphan that just keeps being returned. He's yeah, he been just can't he, get a break. No, he ha, they in the in the book he's been adopted four different times and he's been returned for various and sundry reasons, mm-hmm. all of which that are are ridiculous, um, and none of them are his fault. Right. Um, but Doctor Larch sees Homer as the future for this orphanage, so yes. he begins to teach Homer. Um, medical training, even though Homer is like 12, 12. Yeah. So he's (laughs) assisting him on all these procedures and everything. Um, and Homer again is very morally opposed to the idea of abortions. And while Mm -hmm. he doesn't, well, because he's an orphan. Yeah. And because his life has value. Yes. And he understands that his mother made the other decision, but Mm -hmm. it could have very easily gone that way and he wouldn't have existed. Um, so he understands why Dr. Larch performs the abortions, mm-hmm. but he refuses to be a part of that. Yes. Um, and then he goes off on an adventure. He goes out to see the, to see the world and mm-hmm. to see what exists outside of this orphanage. It's a very small bit of the world, but yes, well, more than he's seen more before. More than he's ever seen before. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's the story of Dr. Larch kind of grooming him mm-hmm. for his what he thinks is his destiny and Homer figuring out what his destiny is. Yes. Um, and if you somehow have missed John Irving, um, he has plenty of books to pick up and um, many of them have been made into movies. Mm-hmm. And I Some don't with think... better success than others. Like, I'm not sure the movie The Hotel New Hampshire... I don't know that the movies of any of his books, books have ever done his books justice. I think the Cider House Rules and Garb. Um, I I thought the book was better for well, Garb. The book but, was better, but the but I think the Cider House Rules mm-hmm. is probably the most successful of the movies, and mm-hmm. I think it's because he wrote the screenplay for it, and mm-hmm. he was able to fix some things. To shorten it, because his books are long. Yeah, and, very long. And uh, movies, you know, are not. Yeah. And so um, to condense something down without losing the heart of it is a tricky, tricky thing, um, as we all know as mm-hmm. book lovers. And so I do think The Cider House Rules probably stands up the best of all his movies. Garp, I do love. I just have a sentimental attachment to it because I saw it in the theater. Sure. And um, I was so bitterly disappointed by the movie version of A Prayer for Owen Meany, which was called Simon I Birch. never even... I, I actually never saw it. It was terrible. Because um, I love that book, and I, I just... I didn't think it would be good. No. So it, I, I, I haven't seen it, and I'm going to just keep it that way. No. Yeah, and I mean, he... All of his books also have kind of like... Dark, um, there are some dark themes. There are some kind of oddball-y characters. Well, um, there's a, there's a, sexuality always has sort of a dark theme in his novels, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, it's not necessarily bad. 
he just uses it as a device for um, people being hurt and making poor life decisions a lot of the time. I mean, there are some happy couples. Yeah, but, but I feel like... there's usually some kind of... I feel like he uses um, sex as a... If there's nothing else there but that. sex, mm-hmm. he shows you that that is not the... Not the right path. <laughs> Not the right path. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. he's just a, he's, I think he's an underrated writer. Like in, in terms of the, the people that I know um, mm-hmm. and the, like in talking about books that like, I think you're kind of there, you and my friend Heather are kind of the only two people that I've met that have read John Irving widely. Well, I, I think that he was, very popular with with my particular, you know, I'm the beginning of Gen X and you're the end of it. And mm-hmm. in our particular demographic, he was popular during the time where we're reading books like that. Just like Tom Robbins, which I don't think people read as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, we pe- get people who come in for Still Life with a Woodpecker, but um, um, even Cowboys Get the Blues and some of those books, I, I think they've kind of fallen off the chart. Um, it makes me want to put them back in my... Mm-hmm. Um, staff picks, but you remember when I put, was it Cider House Rules or was it Owen Meany? I put one of them in my staff picks and it took it like three or four months to sell, which is unusual Mm -hmm. in our staff picks. So I don't know what the aversion to John Irving is right now, but, um, but yeah, I think he is right now not being read as much as perhaps he should be. Yeah. Um, and then so that's our that's John our, Irving. <laughs> that's our take on John Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so one of the other books that we've read for another of our um, book clubs was for our Jane Austen book club, mm-hmm. and it was a book called Miss Austen by Gil Hornby. Which, um, <laughs> after a little bit of a rabbit hole, um, realized yeah. that Gil Hornby Be. is Nick yeah. Hornby's sister, um, yeah. which was very exciting because Jessica and I are both huge fans of Nick Hornby. <laughs> Indeed, um, yes. And so Miss Austin is um, historical fiction. It's not a play off of um, one of Jane Austen's no. novels. It is a novel about Cassandra Austin, mm-hmm. and it follows very loosely sort of the arc of persuasion. Yeah, I mean, there are allusions to her books in it, but mm-hmm. it's not meant to be no. a um, like a continuation or a reimagining of one of her novels. It's about um, Cassandra and Jane's relationship, and it goes back and forth in time. Um, but it's, it's about the promise that Cassandra made to dispose of all of Jane's letters mm-hmm. that she after did her, after, after her, her death. death. And so... Um, about preserving Jane's um, character image. and image after her death. And um, I know a lot of people, me included, are very sad that those letters don't exist in the world because um, I feel like they would have given us more insight into Jane Austen as a whole person as opposed to just sort of the small window that we have into who she really was. Um, but Cassandra and and Jane, I think, thought that these would be detrimental to her um, 
the way people would see her and that they were also maybe too personal. Well, and and this is something we discussed at our book club meeting, but it's how much privacy does someone who's a public figure have a right to? And, right. and, and do we really need or is it appropriate for us to know that much about someone just because of the profession they chose? Yeah, it's, it's a hard, you know, as an historian, of course I would want to know more about the whole person because I think the picture we have, or we don't even really have a picture of Jane Austen. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the picture that's painted of her is, um, is pretty much all goodness and light mm -hmm. um, with some suffering thrown in for good measure. Yeah. And, um, you know, reading her, that she had to have a wicked, cutting wit. Mm -hmm. um, well, and the, that's one of the things that I actually liked about this book, that I mm -hmm. think this author did a good job at making Jane a full person mm -hmm. and showing that while she was entertaining and intelligent and all of those things, that she probably was a difficult human sometimes mm -hmm. that, that, you know, she had her moments and she had, um, somewhat of an artist's temperament. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I thought it also did a really good job showing the difficulties that women in general had in that time period. Mm -hmm. Um, and how little they were thought of mm -hmm. if they, even if they did marry, but if they didn't marry, uh, they were just kind of, they had to make themselves useful or there was no use for them. Mm -hmm. And they had no agency as far as earning a living or what they did, how they traveled, where they lived. Mm -hmm. I mean, the constraints of their time were significant. It also, I, there's, there's an aspect of Jane Austen's life that has always bothered me. Mm -hmm. And it was when, when her father dies and they have to move she had a brother who was adopted by a very wealthy family who had lots of property and lots mm -hmm. of money. And it wasn't until he had a use for them after his wife died that he finally offered them a place to live that was permanent and settled and, and settled. And I feel like one, it, why? Yeah, why? Like, I, I don't understand. It's not like it costs you anything. Like, you you have all of this money and all of this property. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't hurting you in any way to give these women a small cottage to live in. Two, Jane's constant moving around during that time really affected her ability to write. And mm -hmm. if she had been settled, there may have we may have had more books. I, and yes. I feel like that is is really annoying. Um. Well, I would have loved to have seen the Watsons finished mm -hmm. um, because it starts out much darker than any of her other books that I've read. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, I've had to read, you know, the reimagining and the finishing of it. Um, and also because she and, was sick, it probably shortened her life. Like the the moving around and being unhappy and just it, mm -hmm. you know, so... So, yes, it is frustrating. I always imagine um, his wife, Elizabeth, as kind of a combination between Elizabeth Bennet and Fanny um, from Sense and Sensibility, mm -hmm. that she um, kind of used the older sister, Jane, um, 
not Jane. Cassandra. Jane, Cassandra, <laughs> who reminds us of Jane in yeah. Pride and Prejudice, um, to help her, but didn't ever think of like spending any money on them. I, I can see her saying, oh, three women? Why, they won't need anything. Right, you know? right. Um, so maybe that played a part in it. But again, we'll, we'll never really know the whole yeah, we don't have Yeah, we don't have that information. But I'm... I'm kind of on a different page with the letters than Jessica mm-hmm. is. Like, while I think it would be interesting to have a more full-formed view of her, I kind of view it the same way I viewed when they um, published Kurt Cobain's diaries and journals, that those were never intended for right. public consumption. And I just feel like it's a incredible invasion of someone's privacy um, to make those things public. Right, so... I started by saying the historian in yeah, me yeah. wants that. But the other side of it is I would certainly never want, you know, any diaries that I had written Mm-mm. or some of the letters that I've written at different points in my life published. Um, so I understand why Cassandra did it. And I um, I don't, you know, hate her for it. No, no. I, but, I mean, um, it's just... I, I just think they would have been interesting. Well, and I also feel like it read. was impossible for them to fathom the the impact that right. Jane Austen was going to have in the canon of literature and that she would be to this day such a a subject of of scrutiny interest. and interest and like i so i i feel like also there was no way there was no to way know. to know <laughs> <laughs> yes no um no, but the book itself, obviously, because we've been talking about it for um, a minute now, was very good. I think it was well done, mm-hmm. um, and I think it fit well into the sort of... It was written in a very um, sympathetic style to Jane Austen, mm-hmm. and so I think it fit well in our Jane Austen book group. Yeah, and it was a nice change to kind of have a book that was, one, about Cassandra, because, mm-hmm. you know... yeah. Um, Cassandra. Um, but also just kind of about her and not like a dry biography about her, but right. just something that was just an homage almost. Yes, like well, a, and then thought-provoking. Yeah. Um, and plenty of opportunities to run down some rabbit holes um, looking at the source materials for this. So. Mm-hmm. And it definitely, it definitely did lend itself to a good discussion about a lot of different things mm-hmm. like um so yeah yes so miss austin by, yes, by gil hornby. hornby and then i have one more book to talk about very briefly okay. um i don't know uh if everybody is familiar with john vanville i mean i think most people are he won the booker prize oh gosh maybe almost 20 years ago or so, um, for his novel, The Sea. He's an Irish writer. Um, recently, he has been writing a lot of um, mystery fiction, mm-hmm. and he has a series. He has um, Benjamin Black novels, which deal with this one character, Garrett Quirk, um, who's an Irish um, pathologist, and so Garrett returns in this novel um, called April in Spain, which comes out October 5th. Um, yet another good one this fall. And it kind of is very much like his um, The Snow, or Snow, which, um, so it's a, it's a literary mystery. Mm-hmm. 
It takes place on the coast of Spain. It's a um, Garrett Cork has gone on vacation with his wife extremely reluctantly to the coast of Spain. Doesn't really want to admit that he's happy there. <laughs> um, and he's being very curmudgeonly, but then he has an accident trying to open an oyster without a proper oyster knife. He uses some nail scissors, not... Not you know, even opening an oyster with a proper oyster knife, <laughs> it, it can go wrong, wrong. really quickly. <laughs> so he ends up in the hospital. It goes so wrong that he ends up at the ER. Yeah. Um, and there a doctor comes in that looks really familiar to him. He can't quite place it. She's Irish. Um, and she sees him, leaves, never sees her again. Um, thinks she looks a lot like a friend of his daughter's who is supposed to be dead. Hmm. And so he starts investigating that further. And his daughter gets involved. Um, Can't you just be on vacation, man? I know, <laughs> I know. But um, so Snow was very much sort of an Agatha Christie riff. Mm -hmm. This one is much more of a Patricia Highsmith kind okay. of sinister and um, everything kind of happening behind the scenes mm -hmm. um, mystery. Um, it... Um, so far, it's very good. It's it it is a slow burn, so it's not going to be a quick paced. Um, it's a more literary. It's mystery. definitely a more literary mystery. There's also a deeply <laughs> disturbing and unpleasant character who is a hitman, who really is really a psychopath and has formed pretty much no real relationships in his life except with his gun. I mean, I kind of feel like if your job of choice is in fact hitman, mm -hmm. that psychopath is also on your resume. Probably so. <laughs> yeah, this guy, he's actually, the book starts out with a description of him and he is, um, has been in the military and pretty much enjoy, he's a small man. So, um, he, really enjoyed his time in Burma because the people he were, was killing were about the same size as him, and he actually talks about that. And then he gets out of the army and doesn't really know what to do with himself, and he ends up kind of stumbling into this line of work. Um, like but, you do. Like you do, and then he finds that he's actually quite good at it, mm -hmm. and uh, that that turns into a career for him. Well. You know, you you have to go where life <laughs> takes you. When it's, when a door closes, a window opens. Exactly, and, <laughs> and that's kind of the way he looks at it. Um, so he the book starts with him, and then he of course comes in later on. He, but he's always sort of lurking in the background, and even when you're reading, you know, the beginning of uh, Quirk and his wife on vacation, and things are going well, and it's starting to be sort of jovial in the back of your mind, you're like, well, but wait a minute, there's this hitman. He's got to come back into this somewhere. He's like Kafka's gun. Yes. Or Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's not, gun. Not, not Kafka's gun. <laughs> Chekhov's gun. gun. If it was Kafka's gun, it would like mutate into a cockroach. <laughs> yes. Or, or a pack of roaming dogs at night. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause, uh, cause uh, oh, destruction mm -hmm. in suburban America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that. <laughs> All right, so John Banville's April in Spain. It is very good, especially if you're a fan of literary mysteries. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a fan of super quick-paced thrillers, this probably is not the book for you. Okay. But, um, yes. Very good. Well, I think that is all we have for this time. Um, plan to hear from us again in about three weeks. Yes. Um, we will gonna... do our best to make that 
a reality. Yes. Oh, and I'm going to give a quick shout out to, I finished re- listening to Broken. The Jenny Lawson book. Oh my gosh. If you have not listened to this or read it and you've ever had any kind of um, self-doubt, mental illness. Or if you've just been a human in the world who's had an awkward encounter with another human in the world. Please. <laughs> Please, yeah, check it out. She's wonderful, and uh, we would also like to say congratulations to Jenny Lawson because the bookstore that she opened, yes, um, the Nowhere Bookstore, finally, finally, finally got to open its doors because um, it was set to open during the pandemic, and they had been doing like um, online sales and everything, Mm -hmm. but their bookshop is is finally physically open, and that's a very exciting thing. So, congratulations to. Fellow bookshop owner, mm-hmm. Jenny, Jenny Lawson. Lawson. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so we will see you again in, well, talk to you again in the mm-hmm. near future. Um, everyone be well. Take care of yourself and, and watch out for, for. Just be careful. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Bye. Bye.